This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. How are you? Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And we are here again with you today talking about film, talking about other things. Danielle, what's up? We got we to talk about something right off the bat. I mean, we hit a nerve, I think. <laughs> we hit a nerve with the joggers versus sweatpants conversation. We're and sure did. been receiving a lot of feedback. A lot of feedback from from y'all. The one thing that I can say categorically across the board is that everyone seems to agree that joggers are a style of sweatpants. And you you were correct about them being tapered at the end Mm. instead of like the drawstring. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not even. That's a first. But instead of the, the drawstring at the bottom. So it's a type of sweatpant. And we have heard from people, someone who wrote to us has a doctorate. We've heard from some people who are in fashion school or have been in fashion school. Uh, We heard from somebody who was so moved by this topic that they went and hid in their bathroom at work to send us an email to tell us about joggers. And we've also received a lot of information about other countries. So joggers are... They are British. I was wrong about that. And also might have had some kind of relationship to Gillian Anderson. I think that was something. I don't know if that's accurate, but I was like, huh, people were doing some hard ass research. So like at the very we were getting emails within the 24 hour span of that episode dropping. So I'm shocked because I I thought it was a bit (laughs) innocuous to mention it because I just thought, oh, we're having some fun. No, it's serious. People are. In these streets, man, they are serious about this. And this is the thing, though. This is the thing. Apparently, they're British. It's a British thing. It's fine. Rosemary and Time did not prepare me for this. But even better, we got an email from someone in Australia (laughs) who said that Australians have a tendency to shorten words and to kind of use a lot of slang. And they I guess they call joggers track pants, but they shorten it or call it Tracky Dax? Trackies. I knew it was going to be something like that. <laughs> tracky Dax? Tracky Dax. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not just going to drop that in this Instagram inbox and just walk away as if that's not the most exciting thing I've ever heard. Australians continue to be the best. They are the best. I love that, actually. I wish we could call them Tracky Dax. I would definitely... Rock some tracky decks. Well, thank you to everyone who wrote in. Um, are we are we the people who should be interrogating fashion right now? Like, I'm just looking around my house and wondering, <laughs> like, looking at myself. But I don't know. What's what's your most recent shopping experience? <laughs> I, I said that in the joggers episode. I was basically like, we should not. I should not definitely be talking about fashion. Um, and and I'll tell you why because my most recent shopping experience, unfortunately was that I walked into an H&M for the first time in a very long time. 
I honestly felt like I was like they probably thought I was a secret shopper or like an undercover police officer because there's all these girls in there who are probably like, you know, 19 years old. And I look, I was wearing my REI gear like I was basically (laughs) like, yo, uh, I'm in here (laughs) looking like, you know, one of the grumpy old men. Like, like definitely like, like if I was not wearing a fishing vest, I would be very surprised. But it was that thing where I, <laughs> I stuck out like a comical grandpa in a movie. And beautiful. I was like, I remember loving this place. Like I, I especially in my 20s, stuff like that was so yeah. like, oh, my God, a shirt is like fifteen dollars this is amazing and they were always like trendy and cute but i it's i'm definitely aged out like there's a there's a hard line like it happened i don't even know like what's happening in an h&m right now i imagine it's just like dildo straps and like i don't even know what's going on in there 90s it's all 90s stuff like they sell nirvana t-shirts they sell Aaliyah t-shirts they sell like basically if you want to dress like you were in that band jade that did that song don't walk away <laughs> <laughs> that's your story. So it's like, is it like an upscale Spencer's? Because that's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like more like. Did you have Gadzooks when you were? No. Oh my oh, god. Do, do tell. <laughs> do tell. What the shit is a Gadzooks? Is Gadzooks a regional thing? So Gadzooks was basically this like hip clothing store that was in the mall that was sort of like skater adjacent so they had like um vans i mean it's kind of like a journeys but more clothes you know what journeys is it's like a the shoes yeah 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 imagine journeys but like more clothing and kind of like lifestyle stuff so if you wanted like essentially if you were like a red hot chili peppers fan mixed with like Vision Streetwear and Massimo and but then also kind of like skater girlfriend clothes. So, you know, kind of like flowered halter bra things. Oh, you know, it's just sort of like, what oh, is the store? That's what H&M kind of reminds me of is Gadzooks. Put um, together a Gadzooks outfit right now for yourself. <laughs> what were you buying in the 90s? Uh, oh, my God. This is so embarrassing. I can't even. <laughs> Definitely into some joke shirts. Let's get serious. That is shameful, but I'll tell you, I owned a couple joke shirts. I definitely had some kind of this is your brain on drugs. Do you remember that? Can't like <laughs> but it was like a like a funny I had a poster that was famous brains on drugs. And it was basically I like that Yes. And then it had these like eggs. That were cracked in a pan and they were like jokes like Mikhail Gorbachev <laughs> and shit like that was like so lame. I actually bought that at Spencer's Gifts. But then the same day I went into a Gadzooks and I bought a Saturday Night Live themed shirt that was Rob Schneider and it was making copies. It was like that character. Do you remember the the, the dude? Yeah, Meister? wait. <laughs> Wait, we're starting at a Rob Schneider making guppies guy t-shirt. This is where this outfit begins. So that was real. That's, that happened in real time and a, in a Gadzooks. And then it would have been something like that mixed with like either ginormous corduroys, like ginormous mm-hmm. corduroy pants, usually male uh, or made for men. 
and then a platform shoe, either wow. platform wingtip. Platform. Wow. I loved a platform wingtip or a creeper. Anybody a ska fan? Oh yeah, the creepers. So now, if you're wearing the creeper, but you're also wearing the wide leg corduroy pants, you can't even see the shoe. The goal was to have the pant hit right above the top of the shoe, and it would kind of right. like glide on top of the shoe. <laughs> so you're just you're just hovering. Millie doesn't walk; she just hovers. Yeah, it's you like a dust, a duster or like something, you know, like a <laughs> curtain that falls gently, touches the floor, like a drape or something. That's that it was drapey, and then. The cardigan. The cardigan pulled the look together. And the cardigan was usually like an Izod thrifted, thrifted cardigans. Never a new cardigan. But everything right. else could be new. Definitely new shoes and the new Rob Schneider shirt. <laughs> so that's my like Gadzooks outfit. Like that that was if they sold that on the rack, I would just buy the whole thing. But I actually did buy the shirt at Gadzooks. Um I love this outfit. Very much. Ooh. And because it, it explains Gadzooks to me top to bottom. Yeah. I now know what this store is all about. Yeah, it was definitely like California influence, but skater meets sort of alternative meets like kind of what's happening in the world. Like, <laughs> I thought you meant what's happening in the TV show. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wish. I wish I could dress like D every day, honestly. Like Rainbow Suspender. See, that's that. So that's what HM is now. Because I used to go to HM. I used to love going in after work um, when I worked in New York City. I was working for the United Nations and I would just like be walking for the train and you could just pop into an H&M and get like a nice sweater, like a big fluffy sweater or just like a simple pair. Like, so just shit I could wear to work mm-hmm. and just still feel like a normal human being. And now I, I don't feel like that is their brand anymore. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because it is like. They're trying to cover a lot of ground in that store, okay? <laughs> Look, H&M wasn't around when I was in high school. I, in high school, dressed like Michael Caine in Children of Men, and I still dress like Michael Caine in Children of Men. Just like, I live in the woods alone. The world is on fire. I have whatever layer I can reach next to me. I've been wearing the same, like, I'm just living that life. I've been doing that since I was a teenager, and I'm going to keep it going. There was a, I won, um, I won a senior superlative. I won most unique for my, for my class. Right. And Ooh. this, the guy that was in the, the, the guy version of it, the guy most unique um, was like, oh, we should, we weren't like really friends. I don't think like we just kind of talk sometimes, but um, he was like, we, we should do all this stuff. We should like dress up and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm going to just show up that day with what I was wearing. And what I was wearing was a black Nike baseball cap. A home tie-dyed, ratty old white T-shirt and a gigantic pair of jeans. <laughs> and I look so salty in that picture because I'm just like, I don't care about y'all. You're like Francis McDormand going to the Oscars. You're just like, Completely. fuck it. I don't need this pomp and circumstance. I do what the fuck I want. Thanks for the award. Fuck you. Thanks for this. I will never talk to any of you again. Goodbye. Also, I'm... F- fascinated by the fact that you got a superlative like (laughs) wow out of your entire school you're the most unique that's fucking amazing i have always just been i just always did my own thing i just did my own thing i used i used to be because i wanted to be a fashion student yeah I, i applied when i first went to school um or when i graduated high school my plan was to be a fashion designer and i was obsessed with todd oldham and just like all this shit um so i used to make my own clothes Right. And 
I would usually go to thrift stores, buy stuff, deconstruct it like 16 Candles style. But I would just also sew stuff from patterns. So I'd find like old patterns that I liked and 70s patterns and stuff. And I so I looked markedly different from everyone in my school because I was not doing the, the you know, the turtleneck with the waterfall necklace. Yes. <laughs> And there's a picture of like the home. There's a picture in the, one of my yearbooks of the, the homecoming crowd. And there was a um, the homecoming princess, maybe. I don't know. She had like the wave of hairsprayed bangs and she fit her crown like around it yes. so that her hair would stay. <laughs> like that was what was going on in my town. Love that. <laughs> and I'm like, how about I dress like Michael Caine from Children of Men when I'm 15 and y'all just deal with it. And they're like, you're unique. <laughs> and that's all it took was me just being like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Listen, I would have killed to have won most unique. I didn't win shit. I was definitely <laughs> like, I was not not a one, not a one to win an award. That's for damn sure. I mean, shit. April, you know, my friend April, who I used to do sort of details with, she got you know, most funny or most humorous. And I was just like, damn, you really got to stand out to get a superlative. I'm like, I am none of these things. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm not an award worthy individual in high school for sure. That's because you were truly cool and you had seven deadly monkeys and you had your three cardigans (laughs) and you were living on another plane of existence. Most angry at everyone (laughs) in the school. And to express that anger creates a underground newspaper that no one reads but her friends. That's my superlative. <laughs> That's the superlative I get now. Oh my god, I, high school was a mess. It was a mess. We got to do an episode about high school um, and maybe make it a bonus so that people have to work to <laughs> listen to it. I don't want. I don't want just anybody uh, hearing about my shit. <laughs> I don't want it to be free and easy for motherfuckers to feel my pain. Monetize monetize that high school pain. (laughs) Let me get something from it. Jesus. Now we should do one because it's like, you know, I I talk about this a lot. I feel like, you know, high school for me was like the worst. And then college was the like big, you know, awakening. Um, Right. And and it's simply just because you move out of the the area, as we talked yeah. about last week with neighborhood creeps, like you move out of the the neighborhood of assimilation and then you get to go and just be a different person. And that was so exciting to me. I was like, oh, my God, I fucking can't wait to like follow a passion of mine and, yeah you know join the college radio station and work at the movie theater and do all the stuff that I never got to do in high school. So, and find your people. Yeah. Finding your people was the best part of it for me because I felt like I went to college for a year right out of high school um, and then I left. And so college wasn't really like the way I made friends in my 20s or like, you know, it wasn't really a base for me because I didn't go back to school until I was 30. Yeah. Um, but like meeting your people at work is the best feeling in the world or like just meeting, going out in the world away from your town and realizing, oh, no, I haven't been weird. They were weird. <laughs> yeah. They're like neighborhood creams. It was it's a good feeling. I would love to do a high school episode. I think it'd be fucking hilarious. Yeah, I would too. We, we got to put that on the list. Alexis, put that on the list. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna monetize our high school pain, but <laughs> essentially, essentially, I appreciate this jogger versus sweats conversation. And I think as we can all agree from the past five to ten minutes of conversation, I should not be judging the fashion choices of anyone on the planet. 
I'm going to stick with my sweats. I'm going to call it a day and you guys go have fun out there. <laughs> yeah. And and thanks again for writing in and sort of like educating us um, because, you know, we didn't know. What the hell? Yeah. Like, how, how did I know it went so deep? I had no clue. No yeah. clue. But we do. We get great mail all the time. So this first email just cracks me up. Uh, it's from Carling. And Carling says, ladies, thank you so much for making me feel like I'm riding in a car with my sisters talking about everything and nothing at the same time. This quarantine has been hard. I'm a nurse and finding a little light during this year has been a struggle. One thing that always gets me to laugh is watching or listening to Van Morrison's set from The Last Waltz. The high kicks, the tight pants, the slurring. It gets me every time. So for the last year, my sweet husband and I have been surprising each other with the Van the Man so we can at least giggle. We both scream, sing and high kick at top volume in our house whenever it is on. I understand your love for this very specific musical scene because for the last year it has been our little inside joke. Thanks for the chuckles, Carling. Carling, first of all, you're a nurse and I wish I could send you on a five year vacation right now. Thank you for I mean, this year, I cannot even imagine what your year has been like. Um, I've just been sitting on my ass at home and I'm filled with fury and and terror. So I just appreciate that you in any capacity have been dealing with healthcare this year. And the fact that Van Morrison's last Walt set is what gets you in a good mood is just you're my friend for life. Yes, like that is you now are the bar. <laughs> you are our people. <laughs> I love that you wrote in. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we both love the last waltz so much. And so if you just want to talk about the last waltz, um, we'll, we're Always. here for you. Maybe we'll do it in an episode just because we yeah. love it so much. Um, that's an awesome email, man. God, love it. I love it when there's something that's very specific that you can bring into your everyday life and find happiness with. Okay, so this email we got from Stephanie. I feel like it's a two-part question. I'm just going to throw okay. that out there, but let's let's see how it goes. Hello, my hilarious movie crew. Oh, we're we're hilarious. I love it. We're a crew. <laughs> <laughs> we're hilarious and a crew. This has been eating away at me. A few weeks ago, my best friends and I were talking about the 1998 classic You Got Mail. When I was younger, I was completely enamored with this movie. The banter, New York City, a man falling in love with your wit and words instead of your looks, the whole package. As an adult, I realized this movie is a little darker than I remembered, and it triggered an argument between my friends. My question question which i thought was simple is could you really fall in love with the man who ruined your family business <laughs> without hesitation my friends both said yes this shocked me because as an adult i see more of the flaws in the relationship of Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox. I'm personally leaning more towards no. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the irrational one who is questioning the relationship and comparing Joe to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> My question to you is, am I the crazy one? Do Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly live happily ever after? Or does Nora Ephron dazzle us with scenery and dialogue to the point where we don't care about how realistic the relationship is? So that's the first part of the question. The second one, Stephanie writes, do the two of you have movies that you loved when you were younger only to rewatch decades later and think, hold on a second. Thank you for making me laugh every week. All the best, Stephanie. This is war. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this, I, I am 100% with Stephanie that this movie is a farce. And it is 100% the dazzle of all the things you love about New York 
in order to distract you from the from the terribleness of this relationship. Because in real life, or even in a different movie, you have this love affair with someone via the internet, which I understand. I met my ex-husband on a comic book forum. We're not going to talk about it, but that's what happened. I get it. However, the minute you meet in real life and realize this is the motherfucker who destroyed your family business that your mom built with her little bony hands, you would walk past him and out of that park so fast. If you guys do that movie for me should end in a fist fight. <laughs> oh, my God. A fist Not fight. a relationship. It should end in a fist fight. Well, I, I'll, I'll be the first to say that I've actually never seen You've Got Mail. Yikes. Even though I actually referenced it in an episode, like I was like, I don't I've never even seen it. And I fucking love when Harry met Sally. I don't really know a reason why I never saw you got mail. They're very different movies, though. Yeah. And I gather that that's that's what I've heard. And clearly um, it's the uh, origin story of Jeff Bezos. So uh, perhaps (laughs) I would not be interested. But as that plot was just laid out to me in this email. That sounds nuts. I'm just saying from an outsider's <laughs> perspective, that movie sounds fucking nuts. And um, it doesn't seem like the romantical, beautiful film that everybody has talked about. It is not. It is not. It is. Here's the thing that I also think is part of the our answer, or at least for me, is that we are now, you know, 20 years removed from You Got Mail. So we've been on, we've seen how disastrous the internet can be to independent stores and small businesses for a long time now. When this movie came out, it wasn't like that. It was a brand new field, playing field, and the internet was just fun. So I think that to play it that way kind of makes sense. But in in hindsight is when you, the movie is bad. It wasn't bad when it came out. It was cute, fun, rom-com. Now that we've seen the destruction like on mat, like like writ large that the, that internet based businesses can do to independent businesses, it takes all the shine off of this movie for me. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like maybe that's a little bit related to the movies we're going to talk about today. But I just have to say, like we try, you know, in terms of looking at an old movie with a new lens. Right. Um. So, yeah, I, I honestly will watch it one day. It's going to be one of those things where I'm just sort of scrolling through and be like, you know what? I never saw that movie. Or maybe I'll just go in and watch it with my mom. Like, yeah, completely. She, she loves watching random movies from 20 years ago that, you know, it'll just be on. You'll have the flu. I think it's a good movie to watch when you have like if you have the flu and you've never seen it, you're going to watch that. Yeah. Maybe that's like a second vaccine um, side effect movie. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Start making that list. Yeah, start making that list. So the second part of that email, though, is very interesting. And it's that simple question of like, what's a movie that you loved as a child, but then now, you know, you obviously think is crazy. Listen, that's like a hundred thousand movies for me. Like the other day I was watching Home Alone and I don't really know why. I think it was my my nephews like had it on, even though it's like not Christmas time anymore. Um, And I was like, you know what? This shit is fucked up. Like, I mean, I was like those parents. I mean, obviously, the the plot line is that the parents forget the kid. Right. But then I'm like, still, though, that's fucking crazy. Like that airline. What kind of airline are they flying where they don't like check the manifest where I mean, just because his ticket was in the fucking garbage can doesn't mean that they don't got a printout of how many tickets they sold. And nobody went down the aisle and been like, 
oh, we have an empty seat. I don't know who this could be. <laughs> I love that Home Alone for You has now become a movie about airline neglect. <laughs> I was like, there's so many, it just fell through so many cracks. Like his, like his life fell through the cracks. Even that, even in the hubbub of like a hundred thousand people in your family trying to travel in one place, which is madness, by the way, I would have been like, y'all can meet me in France. I don't want this entire family here. Um, Even in that hubbub, you don't think one of those people would have been like, you know, Kevin, the most annoying member of our family in our eyes, where is he at? Nobody thought about it. And they were halfway to France before the mom even thought about it. So here's the thing. Also, here's here's the thing. Also, I feel like when you get to France and you realize you don't have your child with you, do you not pick up the phone and call the cops instantly in your hometown? And you're like, my kid is home by himself. Can you please hang out with him? I don't know. Yeah. Do something. Call a neighbor. (laughs) You can't call anyone when you arrive and just be like, hey, I think my kid's at home. Yeah. And honestly, like, I know that Kevin is supposed to be like our little Ferris Bueller type that like loves the idea, is thrilled by the idea of being by himself. But at that age, I would have been crying my brains out. I would have pissed my pants, cried. I would have called like the church or somebody like somebody I'd been like, I would have dialed Mr. Yuck. (laughs) It's the only number by the phone. I'm (laughs) dialing you, Mr. Yuck. I'm home by myself. (laughs) I was like, I got left. This is going to have repercussions for the rest of my damn life. And so. yet my family's going to do it to me at least two more times. <laughs> they just keep forgetting. Our new tradition is that I just get left. <laughs> and I definitely grew up to have normal romantic relationships and don't treat people like crap and bounce at every opportunity. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that is. I. I mean, for me, movies that. I'm skeptical watching now that I used to love when I was younger. That's genuinely half of the episodes we've done. So just go back and take a listen. Exactly. I I even hesitated to mention Home Alone simply because I literally think this about every movie. Like all of the movies we've done on this podcast, plus all the movies I loved in childhood. I mean, there's just like the Excel file is large is all I'm saying. So, yeah. It's a long list, but yeah, Home Alone, that's pretty, that's pretty great. That I know. You're like, the Home Alone is about airline neglect, and that is where this shit start. And that's probably <laughs> not even an original thought. Like, I'm sure that if you go on the internet, there's like, somebody has a Medium account that has talked about this. Po- poked all the holes in Home Alone. But I do love the question. I love the thought experiment. I'm sorry, I haven't said those two words this episode yet. Um, <laughs> but if you have a question for us, please email us at... I saw what you did pod at Gmail. Right. And we love them. We love them. We We read them. We will read them unless you tell us not to. And also please include um, pronouns, anything you want to say about yourself, your name, an alias. Pronunciations. Yes, for sure. And, you know, anything, any other pertinent information, we would really appreciate it. All right, let's get into this theme for this week. And when I tell you that Danielle and I have been talking about this all week, (laughs) we have been talking about this all week. Like every day in between the last episode, we've been like texting each other and like getting on the slack and be like, I can't wait to talk about this theme. (laughs) So Danielle, if you'd be so kind, tell the listeners what our theme is for this week. Our theme this week is Headbangers Ball. Yes. Now, (laughs) I want to know something right out the gate. What is your relationship with headbangers, headbanging, metalheads, 
Heshers, as we called them in my group of friends. What is your relationship to this scene, if you will? This is something that always surprises people about me when they first meet me or when we're first developing our friendships. Um, I 100% was a headbanger when I was a kid. Yes. This is the music of my youth. My first concert was Metallica at the Orange County Fair. I went to the Monsters of Rock tour. Yes. And I absolutely, lo- I still love heavy metal. I love it. I love it. Oh my God, that's so exciting. Um, There's also like different eras, obviously, to heavy metal. You were more kind of like, we were around the same age, and I'm sure we were probably this at the same time, but you were into the whole like 80s. Yes. Kind of glam metal, hard rock scene, right? Yeah, because when we were little, like when I was younger, I remember seeing like the poison, look what the cat dragged in poster up on my friend's brother's wall. Yeah. And, um, like that was kind of the accessible metal for youth. That was the youth. The youth market metal was yes. like a poison. And totally. that was our way in. And then that branched out to Anthrax, Sepultura. Wow. <laughs> like you got into the the deep stuff, uh, Metallica, Megadeth, like all of that. Iron Maiden. Yeah, you just got into it. But yeah, you started out with like hair bands. And MTV really pushed that too, because they did have a show called Headbangers Ball that Ricky Rackman hosted. And I think that it was just kind of the norm. Like there were a lot of a lot of that style was in my hometown, like that kind of angry white male energy was coursing through Warwick. I totally am with you. And we will probably use the terms hair metal and glam metal kind of interchangeably because it was called like a lot of things. Right. For me, this scene was definitely like a middle school thing. Um, I was like super into MTV when I was Mm -hmm. a preteen. And I was also like very fascinated by watching adult things, like stuff that was definitely not made for me, which it's funny because I at the time was (laughs) was <laughs> at the time I was sort of like interested in and in a lot of stuff that was my age I mean don't get me wrong but I was also like Memphis belling at the same time right I was like <laughs> yes. interested in like older guys and I just really wanted the information about what a, being an adult would be like right so right. I, I mean and maybe I'm about to reveal this like horrible thing about my younger self but I was completely fascinated with these like hair metal guys I mean I to me, it was I was fascinated by the entire thing just being so like sexually charged and like mm-hmm. raucous and like, you know, and it felt at the time too, it felt very transgressive. Like, I mean, it was kind of scary. And I right. mean, these are like bands that were basically like, you know, they had a very extreme look. They were a lot of times wearing makeup, um, dressing in very like provocative, skimpy clothing. And I know that a lot of like glam rock traditions from like the 70s were kind of influencing bands like Poison. Like certainly the New York Dolls were very influential to a lot of these bands. But it was like to me as a, you know, 12, 13 year old, I was like, oh, my God, this is like so crazy. Like when I would see the Cherry Pie video by Warren, (laughs) I'd be like, oh, my God, like that is a grown woman. And this is what like grownups do. They just are always making like sexual innuendos. And they're like, you know, and and the scariest band, I mean, 
the, besides Metallica, because Metallica was terrifying, and I, for other reasons, because <laughs> I watched the video for one, and oh, I was we're like, "We're going to talk about that." We're going to talk I about that. I figure we're going to talk about that. But it's that thing where, like, the other scariest band was Guns N' Roses, and I yeah. loved it though. I loved Guns N' Roses so much, but I was like, "Guns N' Roses are unpredictable." They're like totally wild. They, oh yeah, they're giving you patience one day and then they're giving you welcome to the jungle. Yeah. And then they would just do stuff like all these antics, like all these like crazy antics of like trashing hotel rooms and like, you know, sort of being like they were always like performing for the camera and saying like a bunch of grumpy shit and you know, like to me it was like bad behavior. And they right. were fucking they hated the establishment they were like truly like i think the what is the tipper gore thing the prmc oh yeah they were trying to like rein in the music and it was all that satanic panic in the 80s too that had a lot to do with it but it was like they hated that stuff and they they hated they were always getting hassled by the cops and so it was all this like story right yeah that i just thought there's a myth the mythos yes and it was so fascinating to me i 100 percent and with you and i think for me it wasn't about the sexualizing of stuff i was into the terror i was into the fear of it and i think it spoke to an anger that i had as a child that i had no outlet for about you know like my family life and what happened to me and all that stuff and i just had no outlet for it um but i kind of liked that you could be an adult and not be part of the norm like that was in impressive to me to see that like these adults live by their own rules and do their own thing and kind of have their own ethos and their own way to be and I thought that was so cool to me that it was like you know you could go out and make music and be who you were and scare the fuck out of people if you wanted to and it was fine yeah and then there was like of course the the people that I saw in the neighborhood and people I'd see at the mall that were like metalheads and I was just like fascinated by them like there was a group of them in my neighborhood and it was like you know they seemed to share some characteristics like the guys in my neighborhood were into heavy metal they wore black pretty much exclusively black concertations with black jeans and black boots um they were sort of they were all dabbling in science fiction so a lot of dungeons and dragons a lot of fantasy a lot of science fiction books so they just kind of became this like type of person to me that I thought was super fascinating. Um, you know, I thought for the most part, I was like, they're scary, but they also seem smart. So that's, you know, I don't know. I don't like, I, I want to hang out with them if they let me, but I don't, you know. <laughs> well, I, I like that antisocial aspect of it. And I think that it was, you know, I did like it. And I, cause I felt alone and I'm like, oh, here's a music that's mirroring that, but also, you know, a style that mirrors it. And it's, you know, that, you know, that classic, that old chestnut, you wear black on the outside because it's how you feel on the inside. Um, so it's just me just cliching all over town. But um, yeah, I really, I, and I, it's also, it's inexplicable as a like 10 year old black kid in the middle of the country, yeah. like in the middle of a very country town, how that came to be like my defining musical love at a very young age. Um, and I am telling you, I went to concerts. I know it's different now. I know that Afropunk exists and there's like a whole wide world of people to access. But when I was a kid um, up until I'd say my mid 20s, I was the only black person I ever saw at a metal show. Yeah. The only one. <laughs> yeah. I I haven't been to many metal shows because as I will reveal, I was um, 
basically really kind of into the like <laughs> I was into the hair bands and then I kind of stopped. Um, I did not follow that passion at all <laughs> uh, as it got more into like thrash and like and then black metal and stuff. I was not um, I am very uneducated about any other type of metal except for hair bands of the 80s. I know a little bit about <laughs> That's that. Awesome. But, you know, I um, there's something, though, to that scene in particular that is basically of its own time and place and would be very hard to replicate. I think they've tried yeah. a few times. Like there, there seemed to have been, especially in the late nineties and maybe early two thousands, there was this kind of like weird resurgence of metal of like hairband metal. And I think it was like a nostalgia. Cause I remember it's like mullet appreciation started coming right. back into the culture. And like, you know, there was a lot of like heavy metal parody stuff going on. And I think it was just kind of a cyclical thing, but it was never like that, like the no. way that it was, where it was like everybody was doing it in earnest. Well, if you if you want, if an alien dropped to Earth and was like, tell me about a particular time capsule moment in your life and how do I learn about it? It would be 80s metal mm-hmm. and I would give them The Dirt by Motley Crue to read. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like. I had different eras of my childhood, but the the hair metal one was a was a big one. Like Huge. I distinctly remember in seventh grade, that was my big hair metal year was seventh grade. So, but I love oh, that we goodness. share that though because I don't know if a lot of younger people necessarily know about this era, and so that's why it's yeah. kind of like you know it was kind of fun for us to talk about it. I hope it doesn't alienate too many people because it's crazy. <laughs> But it's a wild time. And I'm glad that we have these movies that we picked to talk about. I think your your movie is very directly about the scene and this time and this moment. And I think I think the reason I picked the movie that I picked is because it's kind of about the the dark underbelly of like, who are these metalheads in real life? Like when they are not at shows, <laughs> like this is who these dudes become or have been the whole time. Um, so I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. And it's interesting that they're both documentaries. I will say that. Yes. I don't think, have we done documentaries yet? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think we've done one yet. This might be our first all documentary episode. So I'm excited. Well, why don't you start uh, by telling us about your movie? So my movie for the theme of Headbangers Ball is a documentary that was made in 1988. It was directed by Penelope Spheris. And it is called The Decline of Western Civilization, Part Two, The Metal Years. What if you don't make it as a rock star? Oh, I will. But what if you don't? In 10 years, what are you going to be doing? See, I, I will, though, see. What if you don't make it? I, but I will. I will make it. For sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to quit until I do. The main key is perseverance, and I will persevere. That question is not in my mind. The minute you doubt is the minute you lose it start off with giving you like the info that you need and then we're gonna get into this movie okay so so this is the second film that was made in this legendary documentary trilogy i would say um that penelope spheris made that started in the early 1980s and it was called the decline of western civilization so these documentaries kind of gave an overview of life in LA, I guess, in the 80s and 90s, as it was related to like music. So punk rock, rock and roll, and just kind of like focused on those kind of music related subcultures within Los Angeles. 
right? Right. And the first one came out in 1981, and it was you know, about bands like X and the Germs and Black Flag and that kind of punk subculture in L.A. at the time, which actually hadn't really been shown before in this way. So it was kind of revolutionary. And then Decline 2, obviously what we're about to talk about. We'll get into that in just a second. But then Decline 3 came out in the late 90s in 1998 and focused on, um, you know, unhoused gutter punks that were living in Los Angeles. And up until... I would say the last five or six years. I mean, it's fairly recent. They were notoriously hard to find. Like, I would say that they were true underground films. Like, I remember the first time I saw the first Decline movie, it was basically from like a third or fourth generation bootleg VHS tape that was like at my friend's boyfriend's house. Um, And it was just like this thing that's like, oh, he had a copy of The Decline of Western Civilization. This is a big deal, right? Right. They were released on Blu-ray like only about five or six years ago, like I said, and they were out of circulation for a really long time. And Penelope actually did a little tour when she when they came out um, and she presented the movies in various cities. And that's how I actually met her when she came to present at Emory in Atlanta. And she actually came to TCM and everything. It was awesome. Um, but she she's had such an interesting life and career, like her family history is super interesting. And I just encourage everybody who's listening to like, you know, either watch videos of her talk or like read about her. She basically got started in filmmaking by making these short films with Albert Brooks for the first season of Saturday Night Live. And, you know, she made the first decline documentary shortly after that. And basically. Right after, like a few years after, she made what what my friends and I used to call the original Suburbia, which was a narrative film about punks in L.A. And, um, you know, because there was a Suburbia that came out in the 90s that I think people yeah. would get those confused. I'm like, no, it's the original Suburbia, man. And then eventually it, she had a big Hollywood career in the 90s. I mean, she directed Wayne's World, which was huge and she did a lot of kind of those big comedies that were kind of like snl adjacent like she did black sheep with um david spade and chris farley and then she directed the film versions of like the little rascals and the beverly hillbillies and i mean she was a writer on roseanne at one point i mean she just has had such an interesting career and i mean i didn't hang out with her too too much uh when she was in atlanta but from our interactions she's a super cool lady i mean she has this great look and she's got this kind of great like no bullshit vibe about her um like she kind of reminds me of this like cool tough punk rock mom huge fan of that all right so now that i've sung the praises of penelope let's get into this decline film so um quite honestly like i could talk about this movie all day and night (laughs) for so many reasons It is such a rich text. That's all I have to say. So I presented this movie for some students at UCLA last summer. We were still under quarantine, so it was like a Zoom class. And if somehow we were in that class and are listening, I apologize because I'm about to repeat myself, which is that to me, the decline of Western civilization to the middle years, it feels like we've just found hard evidence of this ancient race of people that no longer exist, possibly (laughs) from another dimension. I do wonder, like I have in watching this again this time, wondered, did any, were there any parents that came out of the scene? Like people who met at Kazari's who were like, 
you know, having kids. Now. I just don't know where they went. I don't know where they went. Hard to say, you know, like I feel like, do you remember that movie, The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke? Yeah. It feels like those are the logical, like that movie somehow gave us the after of all those people living in that scene. And I was like, okay, I, I know this is a fiction film, but now I understand because I, I honestly am like, I hope they are all alive. I really do. But also like, wow. Can you imagine having been in this documentary? <laughs> I know. I know. Like what? How? How do you even explain? What do you explain? I'll let you get into it. But wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like a Mondo movie to me at this point. It's like Faces of Death. Um, (laughs) So this documentary, if you if you haven't seen it, focuses on like a handful of these L.A. based hard rock and glam metal bands who are in various states of professional success. So like you have bands like Poison and Faster Pussycat who are in this documentary and they were super famous in this era. And then you have the smaller bands like Seduce and Odin, bands like that, who were in L.A. and kind of working towards that goal. Like they wanted to be famous and successful. And then you intercut these stories with Interviews with very, very famous musicians like Ozzy Osbourne and um, Alice Cooper, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith and Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley from Kiss and Lemmy from Motorhead. And, and they're kind of seen at this point in the documentary as the elder statesmen of this scene. And then, of course, you have like interviews with fans and club owners and concert promoters and other and people who are just sort of living through this um, glam metal scene in L.A. And in general, there's just so much bravado and outrageousness. And everybody in this documentary is just like young. And a lot of them are drunk and high and they're barely clothed. And it's like hyper male, hyper straight. Besides the fact that there's actually kind of interesting things going on with gender in this scene. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, is I don't even think they even really know that beyond the idea that they're just copying kind of like the New York Dolls or Mark Bolin and whoever. And I'm actually sure people didn't even know them. <laughs> right. Like it was I don't think it was intentional at all because it's such it was such a misogynistic scene. And the way that they talk in the movie even replicates that misogyny. Yeah. I mean, there is like a big question in the movie about men wearing makeup and there's no answers like nobody can kind of explain what they're doing other than they just feel like oh it's because of david johansson from the new york dolls or whatever i think brent michaels says it but it's like they're not even kind of conscious of what this is like what they're representing it's very interesting um and there was also women in this documentary and you know not all of them are in that groupy girlfriend role and a lot of them are musicians like the woman from Vixen is in this mm-hmm. documentary and you know they have their own agency and point of view which I love. I love that that's a part of this documentary. But you know there's a lot of machismo and just like bad behavior and like the Bill Gazzari contest which is a lot (laughs) like i mean even to this day i was like damn that is fucking crazy um but i think that penelope as a filmmaker i think that she's she's in this documentary she's you can tell she's in it right she goes into it and tries to diffuse this a little bit which is deeply fascinating to me i think that's like one of the most fascinating parts of this documentary because 
when it comes down to it, like there's a lot of people like like Dave Mustaine, I think, talked about it. There's other like, you know, metal historians throughout the years that believe that this documentary basically killed the hair metal scene because a lot of people in this documentary came off looking like fucking idiots. Right. Yeah. And Penelope is in this documentary asking questions of them and and like taking in the task for a lot of the spectacle that right that they're mm-hmm. presenting. And there's a scene, there's a famous scene with Chris Holmes from Wasp and his mom oh my God. by the pool. This man is in a pool, drunk off his ass, talking about orgies, and then his mom is just like right there. Yeah. And he's like pouring bottles of vodka on himself. I mean, it's like he's like sitting on a float and he's just sort of like his mom's just kind of sitting in a chair by the pool. And she's like, I don't even know what the actual like what her what she was thinking. I would have loved to know what she was thinking. But Penelope, you know, she's the director and she's like calling him by his name, asking him why he's drinking, if he's hiding pain like he's you know, she's kind of calling him out a little bit and there is the part where he starts like chugging vodka and it's just sort of like very unsettling but you can tell that she's in it and because of that like there's some kind of moral metronome do you know what i mean like there's somebody at least saying like all right this is maybe not the way you're supposed to live your life right um because there's also this really incredible sequence in this um, documentary where Penelope is asking the people the simple question of, what if you don't make it as a rock star? Because everybody, of course, has these like rock star aspirations. Everybody wants to be like Gene Simmons, right? And everyone is simply astounded by this question. Like they're basically like, "Uh, I'm going to make it. What are you talking about? (laughs) Literally not. There's not a single person that doesn't think they're going to make it. And there's so many people in that documentary that I've never heard of because they didn't make it. Right. Right. Exactly. Like we know now that a lot of these people actually didn't make it. But the idea that she just kind of put this question in their mind, like, what's your plan B? um, She kind of forces them to sort of examine themselves. And to me, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting technique. And it does. She is asking the question that we're all asking in our heads, right? Like we're not just thinking it like she's doing the work for us, which I think is like as a documentary, that's a very interesting technique to use. Yeah. Cause you can't help but wonder like how long can this last? This is all very like the folly of youth. Right. And then, you know, the people who have made it like Ozzy and Lemmy and, you know, and Motorhead and like all these people who have made it in the eyes of these hair bands who want to make it, um, they had a whole different set of responsibilities and they came from different situ like a different situation. And, you know, they didn't have a model. So they didn't play music like this because they thought this is how I'm going to be rich and famous. They played while they were working jobs at factories and shit. And then you have this group of, of people who are like, I've never had a job and this is all I want to do and all I'm ever going to do. And I'm definitely going to be famous. And it, I have to say, like, it reminds me a lot of um, when I watched it this time, I was thinking a lot about kind of modern day fame because yeah. the, that's the same thing that you hear, that same kind of ethos that so many people have right now, which is like, there's no way I'm not going to make it and I'm going to be famous at any cost or like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get famous doing what I want to do. And that's just it. And it was very interesting. And she she is a great filmmaker. Um, and I think that this the the reason part of the reason that these documentaries have survived is that and gone from a place of you know obscurity where you couldn't find them to 
having a Blu-ray <laughs> release yeah. is that she really she has a strong voice and she has a great sense of humor. There's this one scene where somebody talked about, I think it was a faster pussycat singer who she asked, why do you have all those scarves on your mic stand? And he said, it's because it looks cool. And then they cut to Steven Tyler and he's like, yeah, I deserve a royalty for that. Cause I started that. And then they go back to this guy and she's like, well, why do you have them on there? And he's like, well, I blow, I blow my nose on them. And then she cuts to like a crowd scene where this woman is like draping herself in the mic stand snot scarves like that's a great sense of humor yeah and that's that's i think ultimately what she brings to the documentary is a sense of humor because part of me is like you know it doesn't surprise me that this essentially killed hair metal because somebody is in there saying like this is outrageous like if it was gonna be just like a really true like direct cinema document i think it would be hard to watch like it becomes less entertaining if like nobody is sort of like again sort of being this metronome throughout the documentary that's like pulling these people out of these like rock and roll fantasies that they're in to just answer simple questions about life and they're like oh uh i've never had a job and i um have nowhere to live and my band isn't making any money <laughs> like like the fact that she's yeah. in there just going by the way is deeply fascinating again i just think it's really interesting i i also well i think that that's part of what she brings to the table as well is that that like like you're referring to it as the metronome which i like um but she is mirroring what i think a lot of people at the time were asking which is like how do you sustain a life like this how does your body sustain all the drugs and alcohol you're putting into it how do you live day to day like what do you eat what do you do like how do you how are you a person in the world if this is your only goal is like this destructive mayhem of a scene and it was so nothing drove that point home harder to me than when she asked she was asking them how they consider girls and you know because so many of these these folks in this uh documentary like we do it for the ladies and we like to fuck and blah 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 and it's all about sex and relationships so she was asking them about that and it was so interesting to me because none of these men think of themselves as sex workers but they would all the next sentence out of their mouth would always be but i did have sex with somebody for a sandwich or something like that (laughs) (laughs) i have sex for groceries Um, and i'm like you know like like women can't come to the house unless they're carrying a bag of groceries and that you know they'll just take and take and take from women and the way that they see themselves she she just put that in my head basically um and, and i think that's the beauty of her directing and her being at the helm of this is that she was already answering questions that I hadn't even thought of yet. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is like a part to me, it seems just based on the short interactions that I've had with her is just like, it's a part of her personality sort of care a little bit really. And, you know, it's no surprise that she sort of has done documentaries about young people that are involved with music. And, you know, she kind of, to me seems like, a person that would kind of be the mother of them in a weird way. And so in this way, she's kind of asking those questions because she's kind of like, it's a concern of mine as a human being, you know, to right. like ask you about, you know, what you're planning on doing with your life. But here's the other thing that's so interesting too, because there's this other technique that she uses in this documentary where she essentially is filming the two guys from Kiss. So Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley in these very stagey setups where Gene Simmons is kind of like hanging out in front of this like trashy lingerie store on like Hollywood Boulevard or something. And Paul Stanley is in bed with like three women 
and they're all wearing like skimpy lingerie and they're just sort of like hugged up on him. They're like staring at him as he's talking and petting him. And it's just fucking outrageous. Like, I'm just like, to me, it's just really that interview particularly really underscores the kind of absurdity of what these people were doing at this time. And it's just the pageantry of it. Right. Right. And I'm not actually certain of this, but it feels like the Kiss guys like thought that this was so badass of them to have been like, yeah. you know, I'm interviewing in bed with like a bunch of hot ladies who are like worshiping me. Well, they thought they were being subversive, but they were just being again, like I think that mis- misogyny is part of what killed hair metal in a way, because it's like if this is your ideal, this is what you're aspiring to with your music is to live this lifestyle. It just looks sad. And disgusting and like degrading to women. Yeah, exactly. And just the pomp and circumstance of it, I think, just got too much. Because you see this thing where you're like, oh, my God, there's like the guys from Kiss and they just look like they're in, you know, a soft lit porno, like right before the sex happens. And you're just sort of like, how am I supposed to take any of these people seriously? Right. You know, I'm just like, this is totally (laughs) absurd. And that's the thing I think like hair metal, it was sort of always teetering on this, like, are these people in on a joke or not? Right. But honestly, like the the documentary just made them look like a bunch of assholes. Right. Like, no, no one knows if they were in on the joke or if they were performing. But it was that thing where like straight up, if if it was a document of that scene, like they looked like fucking idiots. Right. Well, that's that's a good question, though. Like, I don't do you think they were performing or do you think it was just like they because I think they made themselves look like assholes. Like, yes. I don't think she set out to make them look like dicks. Exactly. But she just filmed them being who they were. And so I wonder if there's any animosity towards her about it that should really just be turned back on themselves. Um, you know, I just I don't know what the fallout of this movie was or what the the reception of this movie was in the scene. But I do think that she absolutely succeeded in showing these like bratty, shitty men for who they were. And that is a triumph. Yeah. And, you know, but also at the same time, like she's showing the bad behavior and calling a little bit of it out. But she's also like she understands that it is a pageant. Like she understands that it's a circus, at least in my opinion, because there are moments where she's basically like, you know, like there's that whole thing with that happens with Ozzy Osbourne um, where he's in the kitchen and he's preparing breakfast and he starts talking about drug use. And then there's a scene of him like pouring the orange juice and he spills it and apparently that was staged like that actually didn't happen so there is a moment where i'm like i think she definitely understands the like there is some kind of pageant to this scene and she gets that that's a pageant and that's kind of a funny joke right but for the most part these guys do make themselves look like assholes um (laughs) and The funny thing is that I really think it's telling that the interview with Dave Mustaine of Megadeth is at the end. Yeah. And I feel like maybe it's this like symbolic end of the glam era. Like you can certainly sense that Dave Mustaine is not what poison is about. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he's like, this ain't me. And I think that's very interesting that it comes at the end. It, It draws a very interesting line under that whole decade of music. Because then, you know, grunge was grunge was hot on the heels of of heavy metal. This came out in 88. So like within four years, Nirvana was going to be huge. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I think that it's it's it is a very interesting line to draw under that that documentary to end with this guy who's like the most 
I don't want to say real, but like to, to end with this guy. That's just like, I'm not having any of that. We're here for the music. I'm Dave Mustaine. I like to drink beer, shout into a microphone, and I love my parents. And that's all I'm here for. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, it's less flash. It's more just like pure, yeah. the pure energy. Um, and honestly, like for me, I, I mean, as much as we can sit here and critically deconstruct like the scene and the in the documentary and the function of the documentary, it is nostalgia for me and for you, I'm sure, because it was that that high era of hair metal and um there is like i mean i'm never gonna not love seeing like big bangs and you yeah. know kind of and 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 i say that this is a record of people that don't exist anymore but i gotta be honest there's definitely some stragglers like i went to the rainbow in la like pretty much like a month before the pandemic, I went there with some friends. Um, one of my friends from out of town, who's a big metalhead, he he was dying to go. And there are people who are still living that lifestyle. Like, just go to the rainbow on the Sunset Strip and you will see all these people who are still living that that life. So it endures in some way. But yeah, that is wild. I Yeah, this is, is definitely a nostalgia movie for me. And I think that. You know, I don't need to, like you said, we could de- deconstruct this all day long. I'm constantly in in a battle of, with, you know, my feminism and my music choices and, and it's fine. Yeah, I, I get through. But I think <laughs> that this is just a, such a moment that explains so to me, it explains so much about why I am the way I am. And it's nice to have a document that's like, here it is, guys. This is wh- this is where it started. <laughs> I love here it is. <laughs> I love it. I love that that does that for you. It's so fun. And we're not look again. We might have to do it like a an extended episode of the decline of Western civilization too, because we haven't even talked about demetaling. Oh, I know. I I was like the choice to like bring in the lady cop. That like tries to give us the like information about the the devil horns of this the six the three sixes. I'm just like, what here's the fuck? The, here's all the sixes. You can see them right here. Yeah, and I was like, I actually don't see that, but thank you. That just that the, there was a program that existed to get the treating heavy metal like a cult that you had to get your kids out of just blew my mind. But again, like that satanic panic, like that extension of it was just this is an extension of it, and it just was very funny to see. Yeah, I love this. I'm glad you picked this movie. Oh, thanks. I'm glad that you loved it, too. Going back to my roots. Yeah, well. It's like you said, it's a it's a document. It's a living document of a time that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I cannot wait to talk about it. I want to hear oh everything you have to say about it, because honestly, oh, my God. All right. So my choice for Headbangers Ball is a documentary that came out in 1999. Uh, directed by Chris Smith, and it's called American Movie. I'm broke, man. I gotta get gas tomorrow. And dude's talking about making a feature film. Uh, the name of the film is Coven. Coven, Coven. Uh, Coven, uh, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no. Coven sounds like oven, man, and that's just, it doesn't work. Oh, boy. All right, look. A synopsis of this film, because we're just going to have to start there and go and go from, from we, we need a foundational point, so I'll give you a synopsis. <laughs> I understand. This film is about the director following a man named Mark Borchardt, who's a Milwaukee-based working-class guy. We follow this guy for three years as he struggles to finish his independent film, Northwestern, by struggling to finish his independent horror film, Coven. 
But at its core, this to me in this recent viewing is a film about elder abuse. (laughs) So (laughs) Chris, Chris Smith actually met Mark Burchard um, while he was editing his student film at um, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And he had a film called American Job that was part of his, I think, his thesis. And so that's how he met Mark and decided to, like, follow him as a subject. Mm. Um, and Chris Smith, by the way, has gone on to, he wrote and direct the Fire Festival documentary on Netflix. Oh, yeah. And he also worked on, he I think, directed all eight episodes of The, the Disappearance of Madeline McCann. So he's still... Still doing his thing, as is Mark, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. So who is Mark Burchard? Why, why, why did they follow this guy around? Mark is a, um, a man in his 30s who delivers newspapers from his car. Um, he has a girlfriend named Joan, but he also has three kids with a woman named Alyssa. And it's unclear about if their relationship is still going or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he has recently shown his three children, all of whom are under the age of 10, it looks like, uh, Apocalypse Now, to the point where the kid <laughs> can quote from the film, where one of the youngest children can quote from the film, the horrors, the horrors. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. There's also a scene where he's hanging out with his daughter and they're just kind of laying on the floor and she has a purple headband around her face. And she, I didn't know where just goes, shit, man. All I can see is purple. And he's like, did you just say shit? And she's like, nope. And he's like, I'm not mad if you did. And I'm like, you should be mad if she did. Like, who is this dude is horrible, horrible person, horrible dad. He's kind of a functional alcoholic. He has a terrible attitude and he's super selfish. Like he treats everyone in his life like shit to serve his own selfish purposes, which is to make these movies. So again, this is a man who has heavy duty responsibilities, but his main focus in life is to make these movies. And the way he does that is by hiring his friends, relying on his mom to be his camera person sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, his best friend, Mike, who is the best sidekick of all time. We're going to get into that. Oh my uh, his best friend, Mike, does the music. Um he just takes and takes and takes. He's borrowing from credit cards to pay, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. He's just kind of a mess in this movie. And he's so scattered that you genuinely start out at the start of this film. He's talking about this independent movie, Northwestern. He seems to have a plan. He's got actors, everything. And then he just has no money. So he's like, oh, I'll just finish this other movie, which is called Coven. But he pronounces Coven. <laughs> throughout the movie and it is so great it's like nails on a chalkboard to me i figured it would i I was like if anybody is gonna be taking this guy to task for the coven coven thing it's daniel henderson it's me and robert richard george who's one of the actors in his film and they have a (laughs) small (laughs) they have a small interview scene and he says coven and robert richard george is like um Coven. No, that's the proper pronunciation. No, no. Coven sounds like oven, man. And that's just, it doesn't work. It's like you can tell that he's just like at his wits end with this dude. Um, So, yeah, he just, Mark is not, he's not a good dude. He's not a good dude. He's, the way to encapsulate this, the way I've been thinking about this is, is that, He's like the the hyper little kid in your neighborhood who was always describing like an epic bike ramp trick that he was going to do. And it just got more complicated and more impossible. <laughs> and he just never got out of that energy like that is just the energy he carries through life now. 
Yeah, it's like childlike delusion, right? Completely. Mm-hmm. Completely, because he started making films. He got a Super 8 camera from, you know, some guy down the street and started making films when he was younger, which is sweet. You know, I think that a lot of people get their start that way. You never know what's going to, like, you know, click click over the the creative juices to your lifelong dreams and goals and desires. You never know. So he, this is his focus. However... Based on what his own family says about him, his brother at one point says, I always thought he would grow up to be a serial killer, a stalker, or just plan someone's death. So I feel like the emotional component is missing there for him to take this passion to the next level. But what do do you think about how, about his relationship with his family? Like watching this film now as someone who's closer to the parents' age. How did you think, like, what do you think? Because his family seemed to to me to both simultaneously pity him and just be absolutely furious with him. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the former for sure. Like, I think that they've they've made their peace with the fact that he's just going to be who he is. Like, I think they're like, well, we got these other sons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like this guy, you know, he's kind of just has like singular thinking. You know what I mean? Like he's going to barely get by, but he's going to be really passionate about one fucking thing. And, you know, I don't even think it's possible for us to kill it. Like we just can't kill it. So let's just let him be it. And, you know, (laughs) we're going to try to help in the way that we can. But honestly, like we just have to like shield ourselves from the rapid fire fucking passion slash um you know enthusiasm because yes i i don't think that there i mean i think at one point the dad i think it's the dad who mentions that he just like didn't like school and he was sort of like you know maybe a little bit of a problem child right so i feel like with that like you're basically setting a stage for this kind of um for this kind of scenario where he's going to be like, well, he's probably going to live at home or live close to home. He's going to like lean on his parents or his family for money and for things like that. And, you know, it's because he's just, he believes that he's going to be like the next Spielberg or the next George Romero or whatever, you know, uh, because he's a big horror movie guy. So that's, that's kind of my read on the family. But now the, the uncle though. Well, yeah, there's a family member. Oh, boy, who has been just suckered in by this dude. And I am so confused about what is happening here. We're going to have to talk about Uncle Bill. (laughs) Now, Uncle Bill is 82. He is his he is Mark's uncle. Like he is his father's brother. And at one point, his father says, you know, Bill, I don't know, like he used to be a scholar or like he hinted at some point that he had some kind of like life of the mind. And Bill in the current state when this movie begins is he's living in a trailer. Um, He is kind of showing signs to me. of He's like he's sundowning, like he's showing signs of dementia for sure. sure. And Mark is just dragging him to a bank to, you know, sign checks. And it is this is where the elder abuse angle to me comes in, because I feel now like watching this that I was like, holy, this man has no idea what's happening. He keeps asking questions that are not getting answered and he can't even understand the answers when he gets them. And he apparently in one interview scene says he has like two hundred and eighty thousand dollars in the bank because the director just asked flat out, like, how much money do you have? And he's like, ah, about two hundred and eighty thousand dollars. And to me, I think 
either that's true and this man has worked his entire life. He's one of those like hard won Midwesterners who just saved every penny and worked his ass off. Or the dementia has hit and he has $28 in the bank and can't tell the difference. Right. It's never exactly clear, but he does have money to give to Mark for this movie. And he keeps writing checks and he keeps... The thing that bothered me the most is that Mark keeps calling him an executive producer. Like, you're the executive (laughs) producer of this movie. And I'm like, this man does not know what day it is. He's not an executive producer. Like, there is a scene, a Thanksgiving scene, where Bill comes over. This is so indicative of this whole film and every relationship in it when you see this scene. Because it's Thanksgiving... Both mom and dad have fucked off to have dinner elsewhere, like with his brothers or like you get the feeling that Mark's not invited. Mm. (laughs) Like he's not going. Yeah. Everyone else is fucked off. He's made his own like raw looking turkey. He invites his friend Mike over. He invites Uncle Bill over. Somehow ends up bathing Uncle Bill after a, a hefty amount of peppermint schnapps with Sprite, which is Uncle Bill's drink. Wow. And. He it is just like he's laughing at him and he's just kind of like you can tell that this is a guy who doesn't know what's happening. And Mark just thinks it's so funny. And I'm like, this is not funny, dude. You are taking advantage of this guy. Well, and it did make me think, too, like on the executive producer tip, like just how many executive producers that are listed in films, just how many of them are like fucking reluctant family members with like some lottery winnings or like a trust. It's like, you know, to me, that to me was the the funny part of calling somebody an executive producer. You think about, you know, oh, this is like a Brad Pitt or something. Brad Pitt's right. an executive producer. Um, your uncle who doesn't want to give you the fucking money, but you've worn him down so much that now he just is the executive producer. I just wonder if that that cannot be an isolated incident. This has to be no. happening so much in film history, right? Oh, I bet it's happening right now for Instagram accounts where people are like, if you just buy me this $400 ring light, like I'm going to be making these videos and you're going to be the executive producer on my YouTube channel. It's so bleak. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, because that's the other thing that his dad says when he's talking about his own brother, where he's like, nobody in our family has ever been able to get a dime out of that guy. Not a single dime. So for some reason, he's into this thing with Mark. And I think it's truly because you can tell in the casting scene, he basically just brings his uncle pictures of women that he's thinking of casting to look at. And that seems to be enough for him to sign over thousands of dollars. Yeah. He, he's he got the gift of gab and the gift of persuasion for sure. And the gift of annoyance more than yeah. like that guy asking me for anything three times in a row. I'd be like, fine, just take it, get out of my face. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. I'm like, you know what? If you really had curtailed this into a different career, you know, you could probably have been a successful businessman or like a lawyer or something. The way that you're able to just like convince people to do your bidding, because that's the other thing, too, is that there's so many different people in this movie where he's proposing these like outrageous scenarios and they just go through with it. Like the fucking guy who has to put his head through the the safe door. Okay, there's a scene where Mark is genuinely grabbing someone by the shoulders and shoving his head into the the door underneath the sink, the kitchen sink. And 
Ken, who's a totally different friend we're going to talk about in a second, Ken has scored it. He scored it to make it easier to break. He hits this guy's head into the door at least 10 times before he realizes it is too thick to break. So then they cut it down. They basically have to cut the door in half to get it to work. But this is, again, after they've already done this like 10 times. Yeah. And then in in this final scene, it's already broken for the most part. And then he just like puts his head through it, I guess, as a technicality. But, you know, amateur filmmaking, man, like got to love it where you're just sort of like, fuck it. Like, let's just keep going. (laughs) Right. And that and that's what's interesting to me about it is because I think a lot of amateur filmmaking has all of these elements to it. Like you just do what you can to get the shot and, you know, do do what you got to do. But he takes it to such an insane level with like the professional equipment and that like he kind of puts the cart way before the horse for most of this film. And so it doesn't read so much as amateur filmmaking as it does like this grandiosity or this arrogance, you know, that he has because he's not just doing this with like a handheld, like a handy cam. Yeah. <laughs> like he's going out and buying like professional equipment. <laughs> now I hesitate to call it amateur filmmaking. I mean, it is independent filmmaking for sure. Uh, but it's that thing where like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Amateur filmmaking would be more like, I don't actually know what I'm doing, but it is clear that this guy had, I mean, you listen, when I saw the shelf of film books that they pan over, I was mm-hmm. like, I know this guy. I fucking know this guy a hundred <laughs> times over. Like go into a guy's house and you see like screenwriting books, books about making movies, biographies of like directors, like all this stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, this is the self-taught yep. guy. Like he's got some fucking opinions about some shit and you know, he's making his own movies and they're probably horror movies and he's definitely not scoring a fucking door before he puts his, <laughs> You know, he's not doing it enough and then we'll destroy it and then, you know, put it in the final cut. So it's that thing where you're like, yeah, it's not necessarily amateur, but it's like it's delusion. Right. I mean, we are talking delusion, but it's also just sort of like the goal. The goal of what he wants is so big. It's so big. And the reference points for what he's doing are so big that yes. you know you would he you said he sounds like when you're hearing him talk that he's like Cecil B. DeMille like exactly. you know like he's making this huge epic production but he's scrapping together three thousand dollars from an uncle at the end of the day and there's something to that there's something interesting to that you know? there is it's a fine line between delusion and I don't even know how to say it. like it's it's a fine line between delusion and persistence i guess yeah but. it is so fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah a very fine line but this is also someone who like he says at one point that just with a completely straight face like yeah we're gonna do 52 shots in the next six hours which as someone who has been on actual professional sets is insane yes it is insane <laughs> to think you can accomplish even half of that in six hours so like it's part of that grandiosity and it's part of that delusion where he's just like, like you said, he's just so confident in his abilities, which have yet to be proven, yeah. that he's willing to just make these grand claims and do whatever he can to live up to them. He doesn't ever dial it back. He doesn't ever adjust. It's always this is the goal. The goal is absolutely wild. And that is the only goal at all. Yeah. Like we're never going to adjust. it. <laughs> well, and he also does have that like pyramid scheme thinking which is that oh in order to do this thing i need to 
do this thing, sell a certain amount of yeah. units at this amount, and then that'll fund the next thing, which is a trap. Yes. Like, and and that to me, you know, because there's also that scene where I I felt this shit. I have to say, I felt that shit where um. You mentioned it where basically he's ripping open his mail and he's talking about like all the bills that he owes for. He owes the IRS. But then a humongous <laughs> smile comes across his face and he and he jumps for joy when he realizes he got like a MasterCard in the mail. Yes. And I've been there like I've been there. Like, oh, my God, I got a credit card. Who the fuck gave me a credit card? Now I can eat for like a couple months. Not realizing that credit cards is not free money. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly and also and this is again this is what what's so funny to me about that scene but yet also infuriating because that's the the line i walk with this guy throughout this documentary hilarious infuriating yep he gets his credit card not once does he think maybe i'll buy my kids some clothes (laughs) like maybe i'll start you know paying maybe i'll buy some groceries yeah. for my mom whose house I'm living in like he never it's always like I can now put this into the movie yep he doesn't borrow enough money from his uncle to even like fund a life yeah if his uncle has that if Uncle Bill has that much money how is he not just like can you just straight up give me ten thousand dollars to do this whole movie right now <laughs> Like, what is this nickel and dime shit? Because it's part of his grandiosity. It's part of his thought process that, like, if I get this little bit, I can turn it into double. Like you said, he's just got he's he's his own pyramid scheme. (laughs) Be your own pyramid scheme is the message (laughs) of this movie. And then, look, we have Mike, who's kind of his best friend. And Mike is a cautionary tale that is walking and sitting right next to him in the living room that he can't even see. Mike is so wild. (laughs) I've never seen anyone like this on screen. I have met people like this in real life. I've grown up with some people like this. He is so wild. Mike is kind of very gentle, curly haired, you know, like wears tie dye, kind of like a might be a headbanger, might be, you know, just like, you know, he loves music. Yeah. Yeah. Like a Zeppelin dude. Like he just loves guitar and he's actually kind of a virtuoso. I don't want to say virtuoso, but he's actually like a really good guitar player. Uh. The problem is Mike in the retelling of his own story almost died because his friendship with, with Mark was solidified through partying. And he doesn't party anymore. So throughout the movie, you see Mark just disregarding that. Just like, let's go buy some beer. Let's go do this. Good friend. (laughs) Um, So he's kind of like stuck with in this situation that he's created. Got kind of a hell of his own making. But he's he's kind of brain dead. Like, I think there's something to the amount of partying and drugs he did. In his own story, he talks about being on the hospital bed waking up and wanting to take more acid. So he's like looking through his pockets for the acid that was in there (laughs) while he's hooked up in the hospital, all these machines like he partied hard and maybe too much. Yeah. If you're a person who is in the hospital and all you can do is think, when can I drop acid in this hospital? (laughs) You might have a, a slight problem. You got to call someone. You got to call, call someone. someone. Yeah. And he does, to his credit, his um, AA sponsor, who he goes to buy Scratchers with, because Scratchers and, you know, the lottery is his thing now. Um, his that. AA sponsor takes him uh, to get Scratchers right before they go to the Gamblers Anonymous meeting. 
So he's got a plan. He's got it worked out. <laughs> that feels also very pyramid schemey. <laughs> Everyone in this movie is their own pyramid scheme. It is wild. And so he's just kind of this silent, this kind of silent vessel behind Mark in the whole movie. And there's a scene where they're trying to get Uncle Bill. He's trying to get Uncle Bill to say a couple of lines in a car. It is true mayhem. It is 50 takes with this old man's outside in the cold in a car. His dentures are loose and clacking around in his mouth. And Mark is just like, we got to get it. We got to get it. We got to get it. And finally, this guy, finally Bill's like, this is for the birds. I'm done. (laughs) And the whole time this is happening, Mike's just in the background chuckling. Like he's just laughing at the whole scene. Yeah. So he's just, he's seeing something that I don't know what he's he's seeing from his perspective, but he is just a silent vessel that is here in this film to showcase just how hyper and insane Mark, yeah. Mark can get. Exactly. I was thinking that Mike was probably the metronome of this film. Like he's basically like he's the yin to the yang of Mark, right? Because right. Mark is so high key. He's so <laughs> he's insane. So and he's going fucking buck that you have to have a guy like mike to balance out the the energy right (laughs) it's so true like universally it is true like you have to have that and he is just i mean this is a pair of friends and this documentary is so worth watching for all of these you know intricate little moments and seeing all these relationships and how everyone is kind of beholden to or you know this is this is where mark is kind of a master manipulator because everyone in his life is beholden to his vision yeah and he's getting everyone to kind of do his bidding and help him with what he needs and what he wants to do to get this movie made um and it's kind of you know he's he's there's a lot of abusive relationships that are that are in this film that are being replicated and and showcased because this one guy has to make this movie. Yeah. So who's the Ken guy? He was the guy that was in jail that like went to jail. Did they ever talk about why he was in jail? I'm, I'm I forgot. I it'd been a long time since no. I've seen it. So Ken is a, a childhood friend who, according to Mark's mother, is a bad influence. <laughs> and he, she says she's like, they're a bad influence on each other. Yeah. And halfway through the movie, Ken goes to prison. He gets arrested um, and Mark goes and bails him out. And there's no indication about, you know, what this guy does or did or how he's helpful to the film or if he knows if, if he's doing anything with his life. Nothing at all. He's just kind of a dude who's around who they've known since they were they grew up together yeah and like they mentioned that the detectives were waiting for him and i was like he must have yeah. done some shit yeah. like i don't know what it is the, i mean it's kind of fascinating that they don't reveal what it is but honestly yeah. i was like damn something went down and you know i was like i guess they're not gonna close up that hole i guess we're just gonna let be left wondering <laughs> maybe legally they couldn't because it's probably an ongoing case and it is it's like there's all these layers that's the other other thing that kind of comes through loud and clear is that there are so many layers to this because there are people in his life who are more interesting than him that he's not even focusing on yeah like i want to know everything about you know the actors in this movie like who's acting for him yeah (laughs) definitely definitely the actors and i also like the girlfriend is also a very interesting character because she seems kind of like a normal person like almost yes. you know and uh you know maybe that's it too is that he's like he is definitely like 
his energy is so kind of almost chaotic that he mm-hmm. almost has to surround himself in people who are the opposite. Yes, just docile. And that's and like that's to me what the girlfriend seems like too is that she seems like kind of a, a metronome for him too. Absolutely. And it is I I just feel like this again like I know I set this up in the beginning but this feels to me like the other the living reality of of Headbangers Ball. this is this is what happens when you're like i'm definitely gonna make it nothing will stop me this is what happens i know and that's i think the 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 kind of funny connection that these two films have is that it is we keep saying the word delusion and maybe that is the word to use but it's basically people who are insanely passionate about something and they're they believe that they will succeed no matter what and nothing, yep. everything that happens to them is just a temporary setback to the goal of them being famous and rich and and loved and well-known. Um, but then you watch them in the moment and it's kind of like, I don't know, dude, don't know if it's going to happen for you. <laughs> there's, there's a moment in this movie where after professing, you know, left and right all over the place that he's never going to have a job and blah, blah, blah. And he starts working at this cemetery. And there, again, I, where I think the director has a very good sense of humor because he just lets Mark tell these very pointed stories and then we'll just cut away. So there's a story that he tells about how he has to go and like clean up someone's shit in the bathroom at the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And it is so funny. It's funny. The way he tells it is funny, but it's also very revealing because it's just so bleak. And it's like he realizes how bleak his life is. But it doesn't stop him. It's like that perseverance, that delusion that walks the line with perseverance. I don't know. It's just it's a very funny moment. Yeah. This was like a legendary movie when it came out for me because I was in film school and basically we were like, OK, uh, is this us? Are we are we this guy? Um, and he, to be honest with you, that sort of like mythic filmmaker story is obviously very appealing to people like it's kind of the story of people like ed wood and like orson wells and just sort of these like people these like maniacal directors that are sort of just like i'm doing my movie and i don't give a fuck who's you know stay out of the way and you know i think that's a like a a myth or a legend that is appealing to people in film like honestly right (laughs) it's crazy but yeah i remember at the time that it came out i saw it at the movie theater on campus at my at my uh, college and i was like oh my god i i don't know if this is who i hang out with if this is me (laughs) i'm very confused about who i am right now I want to know the numbers. I want to look at the books and see, like, what was the dropout rate after that movie showed on your campus? (laughs) How many people just packed it in and were like, I am not going to be that. Yeah, hard hard to say. Um, I certainly didn't quit. So must have must have set off something in me. But I um, yeah, this got it's so good. It's like as a documentary, it's so fascinating. And as part of this like theme that we have this week, it's it's perfect. It really is the like true life. I'm a headbanger, right? <laughs> I'm a headbanger. Get me out of here. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun. I truly could talk about this era and this type of person forever. But yeah. this was so fun. We have to do it on a bonus. Like, I feel like that would be a yeah. good bonus is sort of like just memories of of hair. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Ha- Aquanet stories. Aquanet tears. Yeah. And also, too, I have to say, um, Mark had the um, I just 
saw a brief glimpse of it. Do you remember when people would wear those like multicolored belts that were made of like hemp or something and they would like fold it over and they would just be like hanging <laughs> off? Like they folded it over and it would just be like peeking out from like under the shirt. And I would be and I remember going like everybody I know has that look and he has that look. And I like screamed when I saw it. (laughs) He has that look. (laughs) Yeah, the fashions in this film are something else. (laughs) So, so, so great. And also like very um I I could not figure out what year it was. Like I had to keep reminding myself. I'm like, yo, it's like the late nineties. It's not 1982. (laughs) It brings this, it does bring that kind of like lost in time energy to it though. Like, Mm -hmm. again, this is such a specific kind of moment and person that I also was like, wait, this is, I was in high school. Like I graduated high school and this came out. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. So fun to talk about this. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing your film. I could, again, we'll do a bonus or something, but this was so much fun. Oh, God, so much fun. We got to talk about the Metallica One video and... (laughs) Yeah. That's a whole other episode, to be honest. That's a whole other episode. Oh, my gosh. Um... Well, let's remind the listeners where they can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at isawpod. And uh, if you want to email us, uh, hit us up at isawdidpod at gmail.com. And um, yeah, what about the movies for next week, huh? Oh, next week. I can't wait. I can't wait for any of the weeks. I love, I just, we did good picking these themes in movies. I, I gotta say, I mean, not to toot our own horn, but. We always like doing the episodes. There's never an episode where we're like, fuck, we got to do this episode with these fucking movies. No, we love it. It's like a little gift from the past, from our past selves that we've given to our future selves. And I dig it. Exactly. Next week, our movies are, do your homework, guess the theme, but our movies are Wonder Boys, released in the year 2000, and The Ice Storm from 1997. Oh, my God. Guess it if you dare. This is a hard one to guess. I know that people are going to try and they might put together an element of it, but maybe try. Yeah, this is another one of these like deep within the recesses of our brain. And we just pray that it makes sense (laughs) when it happens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a sign off. We pray that it makes sense. Thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media manager is Taryn Mazza. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 